Good afternoon, Park Hill. So today we're reading Jonah 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, everybody. This already feels better, I just want to say. Um, <laughs> Um, so nice to be here with all of you and to have you a little closer. Um, I appreciate, my name is Tanika Wyatt, and uh, my husband and I serve in marriage and family ministry here at Park Hill, and I just really appreciate being a part of your family and getting to fellowship with you all, getting to know you, have lunches, and, you know, all those little things that we do. So, um yeah, I just want to say thank you for allowing me to be in this place. Um, and, and even to be able to deliver a sermon. I know we have our lead pastor, and oftentimes, you know, especially when you bring a visitor, you're like, oh my goodness, who's singing today? Who's, who's preaching today? So thank you for having me. <laughs> um, one, one beautiful thing that um, I love, or maybe not, really, really love, but when you are preparing for a sermon, God always works on you. Always. He always works on me. Um, and earlier, folks were like, thank you for being so vulnerable. I'm like, I'm tired of it. But anyway, um, but I can share that with you guys because it's the 12 o'clock. <laughs> Um, so by now, if you have been here for a few weeks, you've already heard this overview of Jonah. David Wade did a great intro to the book um, and the teaching. And then, um, so now you already know, it's not just like these cute illustrations that we've seen on TV and in books about this grumpy man who, um, you know, was swallowed by a fish and kept alive so he can deliver this good message to these sinful people. Um, it's actually about a prophet. Um, Jonah is a prophet whose primary job is to speak God's words. 
Yet he is arrogant and prejudiced and he disobeys and runs from God because he'd rather actually see his enemies die than, um, or he'd rather die than see his enemies live and experience God's forgiveness. So last week, Aaliyah personally took us through chapter two um, during Mother's Day appropriately and showed us the heart of God showed us God's faithfulness to his wayward children and his offering of hope when we are in despair. God extends himself to us in partnership and he does not abandon his people because we struggle and we disobey. And so that's really good news. Today, we're rewinding a little bit and we're going back to chapter one just to see where the story story, um, starts. So as Kyle just read for us in chapter one, we see God sees the wickedness of the Assyrian people who live in the city of Nineveh. And he calls his prophet Jonah to get up and go announce judgment against the city. So Nineveh is a, um, a major city in the, of the Assyrian empire, which is a superpower at this time. And Jonah is no stranger to um, this empire. So Israel and Assyria, they've been enemies for hundreds of years. The city of Nineveh is actually first mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, right after the days of Noah. So there's this long history. And throughout the Old Testament, we see record of invasions and battles and capture back and forth between Assyria and Israel. So this is not just some neighboring town that Jonah doesn't really like because, you know, the weather is bad or whatever. Like, these are his enemies. Um, And Assyria was responsible for countless deaths and the torture of people, including Israelites. So when you think about it that way, it makes sense why Jonah would be reluctant, right? Why he might be angry, why his hatred for this people group might come up before God. But God still, nevertheless, speaks to Jonah. He says, get up, go to Nineveh, and cry out against it. God says he's seen their wickedness and he's calling them to repent and um, or they will be judged by him. So but Jonah, who was chosen um, by God to speak his words, that was his main job to proclaim the words of God in the earth. Instead of bringing his angst to God, instead of bringing his feelings and his, um, you know, his displeasure in all of this, his all just his disagreement, instead of bringing that to God, the Bible says he gets up, he goes down to the port of Joppa, he buys a ticket. It's like, okay, so Jonah's obeying, right? But no, he buys a ticket, a boat ticket, instead of going to Nineveh, which is 500 miles away, he actually goes to Tarshish, which is 2,000 miles away, in the opposite direction. Now, Tarshish at this time was um, the farthest place in the world for an Israelite to go to at that point. As I'm reading this, it reminded me of this place that I remember when I was growing up. It was this fictitious place, like this faraway land called Timbuktu. Has anybody ever heard of that place? Did y'all know it's a real place? (laughs) Well, when I was little, um, it just was this far away land. Like it actually is far. It's a Timbuktu is a city in Mali on the continent of Africa, and it is far. It's like seven thousand miles away far. But back then, I didn't have Google Maps, and I didn't need it. All I knew was if somebody said they were in Timbuktu, that meant they were immeasurably far away, out of reach, and I'm scared because they're probably not safe. So just somewhere out there. Now to my Malian brothers, if you're here or you're listening, my brothers and sisters, please forgive my childhood ignorance. 
Um, I'm sure your country is beautiful, and I hope to one day visit because per Ancestry.com, I'm actually 7% Malian. So go figure, right. Shout out to Ancestry.com. Um, so Jonah goes down to Joppa, and he buys a ticket to Timbuktu. Well, Tarshish for him. And he chooses the most distant land possibly to get away from the God of the universe. As if somehow God would forget his call and his mission, his assignment for Jonah. Because Jonah's just not in the last place he found him. But you cannot run from God. I don't know how that feels to you to hear that, but that's actually good news. I don't know about you, but there have been times where I have wanted to go in hiding. And like, God, I just, I don't want to hear from you. I don't know what's going on in my life. I'm just, I don't like this. I'm going to do my own thing. But believe me, you don't ever want to be in a place where God cannot find you. Even when you disobey, and even when you're in hiding, God knows you, he sees you, and the last words that he spoke to you are still relevant and true today. If he called you a son or a daughter then, and you've run in hiding for whatever reason, God still calls you a son. He still calls you a daughter. He still calls you loved. He still says you belong. He still calls you free. He still, the same thing that he said before is still relevant today. And what's interesting to me is Jonah knows this. Jonah knows there is nowhere he can go and hide from God's presence. We know this as he talks later to the, the sailors. It's so interesting. He says that I serve the God of the land and the sea. But then he leaves the land and he goes on the sea as if the God of the land and the sea will not find him, right? So let's go to verse four. God sends a storm that was so fierce, it would have broken up the ship if the, the storm wasn't stopped. This was all because of Jonah's disobedience. Charles Spurgeon writes about Jonah. Jonah might have wondered, I can go to Tarshish if I want to. I paid the fare. I'm not a stowaway. Yet apologies for disobedience are mere refuges of lies. If you do a wrong thing in the rightest way in which it can be done, it does not make it right. If you go contrary to the Lord's will, even though you do it in the most decent and perhaps in the most devout manner, it is nevertheless sinful and it will bring you under condemnation. Or in the words of my son, Jonathan Wyatt, there's no right way to do the wrong thing. That's the 2023 version of what Charles Spurgeon said in the 1800s. Um, but there's no wrong way, no right way to do the wrong thing. It's interesting that he would tell me that, too. Maybe he was checking me on something. Um, <laughs> but, but what ways have we legitimized sin? Have we wrapped up our disobedience in a beautiful box and put a bow on it to make it look presentable? in order to hide its ugliness. It's, you know, this just kind of something that a thought just came. We call adultery an affair. An affair sounds lovely. I wanna go to an affair. I wanna be with folks at an affair. You know, just even that, that title. We have a way of making ugly things appear to be okay. There's nothing wrong with it. But you cannot dress up disobedience. There's no right way to do the wrong thing. And disobedience is costly. Jonah's refusal to obey God brought on a dangerous storm that could have uh, cost the lives of everybody on the ship. What reason did Jonah have to disobey God? 
The sailors even asked him, what have you done? What are you doing? Why are you running? And it would make sense if Jonah didn't know God, if he wasn't in relationship with him, if he hadn't experienced God's mercy and his love and his power, and if he didn't know that God was sovereign almighty, that he makes no mistakes, that his words are true and trustworthy. If Jonah hadn't personally witnessed this miracle working God himself up close, then maybe we could understand him running away. But Jonah is not just some bystander to, um, to God, somebody who has never heard of the God Yahweh. Jonah is an Israelite. He's a prophet. And he represents the people of God. In fact, his actions represent the people of God's actions then and now. You and me. All of us. So as we wonder, how and why could Jonah have the audacity to run from God? How could Jonah blatantly disobey? Well, let's ask ourselves that question. How and why do we choose to obey? How do we have the audacity to hear from God and turn away and do something different? Make our own path and say, God, this, that sounds good, but I think this is better. This suits my life better. This is good for me. What excuses have we made for going our own way? What wise counsel do we seek that knows more than the living God? How far and how long do we expect we can run away from the words God has spoken to us and away from God's presence? This week in our bread devotion, and as I mentioned, you know, the sermon always works on you first, right? Um, as, we're, as we were reading through the bread devotion, I've really loved getting into the book of Galatians. And it's just been a, a beautiful reminder for me of some things that God has taught me over the years. And so my story is this. Um, as a child, I grew up in church and I've known God to be my father. And the church became my mother. Not because I didn't have parents, um, but because God, I, I felt him really, his adoption into his family, where my natural father, my earthly father was not measuring up. I felt some abandonment. Um, God stepped in. And I love the scripture, when mother and father forsakes you, the Lord will take you up, the Lord will hold you close. That has been my story and my testimony. And so he has also used the church to mother me, to teach me, to nurture me. And so because of my upbringing, I read the scripture through the lens that God is good. God is kind, he loves me, and even when he corrects me, even when there is rebuke, it's good. It's because he's a good father. He's teaching me. He's holding me close. He's redirecting me. And so this week, as I'm preparing and just in my own devotion, I get a little bit of reminder, correction, rebuke. And so it's sweet, but not always. But, you know, it's all good <laughs> um, because the end of it is always good. The end of it is God is holding me close. The, the motive behind it, the intent is I'm holding you close. I'm purifying you. I'm working on you. I'm making you more like me. And I love that about God, that he would be willing to show me myself. Galatians chapter five, verses three through six. I know we can only, we're only supposed to write one verse in the devotional, but I wrote three because it's my book and nobody else is looking at it. So I do what I want. Not really, but 
this time, yes. Galatians 5, <laughs> 3 through 6. I'll say it again. If you are trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. But we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. So as I read this, I'm like, okay, circumcision, I don't really have to worry about that. I'm going to be okay. But the law, reading the law, uh, living by the law, I do not treat, the next verse is Galatians 2.21, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. And I'm sharing this because I'm a law keeper. Maybe not on the way here this morning, in my car because there was nobody around and I was running a few minutes behind. But most of the time, like rules, I, I get it. They make sense to me. I mean, I, I grew up in a family that um, was reckless in every way. Unhealthy boundaries with relationships and finances and food and sex and substances. So the structure of my legalistic church when I was a child all of its rules, its do's and don'ts, they were actually a blessing to me. They provided safety and shelter for me. But as I grew up and began to understand freedom in Christ, I struggled. I still, I, I brought that legalism with me. And I struggled to receive God's grace fully and understand that God loves me just because he does. He doesn't love me because I was a good little girl. He loved me because he's good. And so if keeping the rules and following the law is what made me good, and now God is saying, that's not what I'm calling you to, wait a minute. I'm confused. That's what gave me higher ground. That's what made me better than them because I kept all these laws because I was a good girl. That's what, that's what gave me your favor, God. That's how I earned your favor. And so thankfully, God in his love for me, he encounter after encounter, he began to strip those things away. I used to project those struggles onto others. Um, and I applied all of my rules to other people. And it was difficult for me to love anybody who didn't measure up to those standards. Interestingly, I didn't measure up to those standards either. Full of pride, full of arrogance, withholding mercy from others, and quick to pass judgment. But God over and over again called me to receive his grace fully, to obey him out of love and relationship and out of gratitude for all that he has done for me, to know that his words are trustworthy and they are right for me, they are good for me, not to earn his favor. And so as I began to step into his love for me, it was easier to love other people. I was saying for a season that God is loving me into new places. And that's really how I felt. Like God would lavish me with love and say, see, this is how you do it. See, that's what love feels like. And I'm like, really? Oh, and, I, and now I can freely give that to somebody else because I know what it feels like. And I know I don't deserve it. So back to verse 21 of Galatians 2, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. But Jesus did have to die. He did have to come. And it wasn't just for all of our messy sin, our dirty sin, our ugly sin, 
But it's also the sin that we don't like to call sin, our pride. And so interestingly about the church and all of us good people, right? We don't have a problem saying, yeah, I got a little, you know, little pride. We diminish it. As I mentioned earlier, how do we legitimize and diminish sin? We, God says he hates pride. But for the most part, we're okay with it. There's not been a pastor who was terminated because he was too proud. It's all that other dirty stuff. You got to leave the church. But pride, mm, I get it. Not, it's not so bad. Even though God hates it. And God hates it because pride puts us in a place where we can't hear from him, where we already have arrived, where we're already good, where we don't have a need, where we are just like Revelation chapter three, where Jesus says, you don't know that you're blind, wretched and naked. That's what pride does. And that's where Jonah found himself. So for the second time in this story, while Jonah is on the boat, we hear someone telling Jonah, get up. The sailors go to wake him after trying everything they could to survive the storm. Get up and pray to your God, they tell him. And these are experienced sailors. They're doing everything that they can, but they've never encountered a storm like this. And they have resorted to prayer. They've done everything else. They're, now they're like, okay, we better pray. Now, you know, when your unsaved friends are saying, we need to pray, it's like, oh, I think we do. <laughs> we need to pray. <laughs> but Jonah, because of his self-centeredness, instead of, instead of being outward and thinking about what God, instead of engaging God in this whole process, he turned inward, he went on the run, he went in hiding, he was, you know, left with his own thoughts and his own grievances, and he became depressed. His self-centeredness became depressed, depression for him. And so he's asleep. He's asleep, he's apathetic, He's unconcerned. He doesn't care about Nineveh. He would rather they actually be destroyed. He doesn't care about the sailors who feared for their lives, whose boat is being wrecked, and this is their livelihood. This is how they take care of their families. He doesn't care about any of them. He actually gets on the boat, on the run from God, knowing, again, that his God is the God of the land and the sea, but he gets on there anyway. And so they are crying out, Jonah, get up, do something. Cry out to your God, the creator of land and sea. Save us. And this is the prophet of God. Jonah was a Hebrew, and he didn't care about the salvation of anyone who wasn't a Hebrew. He took comfort in believing that Israel was God's chosen people and all other nations, all other people groups would remain outside of God's covenant and grace and eventually face God's wrath. He actually took comfort in that. You're going to get yours. Jonah had an elitist attitude of supremacy over others as if there was something inherently better about him. As if he was better than the sailors, better than the Assyrians, or anyone else. And he forgot that the reason he's even in relationship with God has everything to do with God's grace. It had nothing to do with Jonah's abilities. It had nothing to do with his righteousness. God found favor in his ancestor Abraham and made a covenant with him and his children for generations. But Jonah was no better than anyone else. He wasn't even good at his job. You got one job. (laughs) He was a horrible prophet. In fact, by the end of this book, you'll see that everyone and everything in the story, the sailors, the Assyrians, the fish, the worm, 
They were all more responsive to God than the one person we expect to obey, Jonah. And I feel like God has been preparing me for this sermon some time ago. Because as much as I talk about Jonah and have this indictment against him, his flaws are just glaring, right? We see, oh, Jonah, he's horrible. You know, what kind of prophet is that? About a year ago, God started to show me myself in the book of Jonah. And as I talk to him, I kind of see him and say, hmm, I get it. I'm a lot more like Jonah than I'd like to think. I understand what apathy feels like. I know what it feels like to be hurt by a person and not really care about what happens to them. They'll get theirs. You reap what you sow. Some of us say karma, but the Bible says you reap what you sow. So it's like, hmm, what, it doesn't have anything to do with me. I, I'm not going to lose any sleep tonight, right? Um, so just last year, I was leading worship at this conference on a stage with a bunch of my, bunch of my friends. Um, and we're a multi-ethnic band. We, we sing in different languages and um, just love it. And so we were, we were invited to sing at this um, national conference for this predominantly white denomination. And it's, it's not unusual. We often receive these invitations from organizations who desire to be more diverse. They want more eth- uh, multi-ethnic representation in their churches and organizations. And so we come as singers and musicians and we kind of look like what they're wanting to achieve in their churches. And it's great. It's beautiful. I love it. It looks like heaven. But for whatever reason, um, at some point during this conference, you know, I'm leading worship, having a great time with my friends and meeting new people, and they're lovely people. Um, You know, I'm just receiving from God, feeling loved by him, loving on him, encouraging my sisters and brothers, right? Um, But at some point, I get confronted with the story of Jonah. One morning, seemingly randomly, but you know, I know God's always working, right? I was praying and reading the scripture in my devotion and the spirit led me to the story of Jonah. And before that point, I don't remember the last time I read the book of Jonah. I mean, I know the story, but that's not where my usual devotion is. So the spirit leads me to Jonah because he knows me. Here I am in the presence of the dominant culture and I'm singing and I'm speaking and I'm smiling and I'm laughing. But at some point while I'm doing this, frustration and resentment creeps in because I'm speaking to the empire. Why? Do I have to sing? And I'm almost, I mean, I don't know if the picture I get is this singing dance for the empire. And there was this resentment that crept in, this frustration, and this why do I have to, this pushback, knowing full well what God has called me to do, knowing full well who he has made me to be, for the body of Christ, for his kingdom at large, and for the world. But the enemy is always, it doesn't matter. You're not exempt from any thoughts and temptations just because you serve in a certain capacity. And even your own flesh. So as I am in service to God, I had this feeling of why. Why do I have to be the one? Why do I have to make them feel better about themselves? But I know 
I know this organization and its beautiful people are not the empire, but in my flesh, without seeing them as God sees them, they could easily represent an oppressive and evil empire and actually become my enemy. When I am in my flesh, when I follow the temptation to other everybody else, me and them, me and you, us versus them. But the beautiful thing is, even if they were my enemies, what do we do with our enemies? Jesus teaches us to love our neighbors and our enemies. God quickly reminded me that I have been a recipient of his great grace and his love and how dare I withhold that from anybody else. How dare I withhold his love and his message of good news and reconciliation and keep that to myself. I'm no better than anybody else. And the truth is, they are my brothers and sisters. We are a part of the family of God. And that's what makes it so beautiful is because we are different and we have different gifts and talents and cultures. And we bring all of these things to the table together so that we can all have a feast and we dine together in a much more beautiful way than I could do on my own. Jonah wasn't the only prophet in Israel at that time of this story. There were others God could have called to go to Nineveh. But he called Jonah, and I like to believe that he called Jonah in the same way that he showed me myself. I like to believe that he called Jonah because he was arrogant and prejudiced and a nationalist, and he needed to understand that God's love extends beyond the borders of Israel, even to the most wicked of people. God needed to show him something, that I know I've been faithful to Israel. I know that I have a covenant with you. I know that I am your God and you are my people, but don't forget that God's mercies endure from generation to generation, that God himself is love. And that no one is outside of his reach. And even the storm, God doesn't waste a moment. God called Jonah and he used the storm to introduce himself to the sailors. We see in verse 16 how quickly the sailors respond to the power of God. They were awestruck. They offered God sacrifice and they vowed to serve him. Yet with all of this that Jonah is seeing, by the end of this chapter, his heart is unchanged. He tells the sailors, throw me overboard. Now, Jonah didn't do this because he was um, desiring to rescue them necessarily. Um, he didn't know that he was going to be saved. He didn't know that God had prepared a fish to swallow him and keep him alive. First of all, my assumption is if a fish, a shark, and anything bigger than me is jumping up to catch me, those are my last moments. So, um, but God, that's a, the other miracle. God kept him alive. But for Jonah, asking to be overthrown was a death sentence. So Jonah wasn't giving up his life for the sake of others. His request to be tossed over, overboard was an extreme way of saying, I would rather die than see the salvation of my enemies. I would rather die than obey God in this manner. God, what you did before was okay. What you asked me to do before, okay, I'll do that. But this, I don't understand, so I'm not doing it. I, I refuse. I would rather die. And Jonah had every right to be angry and hate sin. It made sense that he would feel some type of way about God's command to go preach to Nineveh. But the thing is, he didn't disobey because God pronounced judgment on them. That would have been okay. If he could go to Nineveh and preach fire and brimstone and destruction, that would have been okay. 
But Jonah disobeyed God because he knew that God is merciful. He disobeyed because he knew that God would hear them if they repented. He knew that God is faithful to forgive. And he didn't think those people deserve mercy. He didn't think those people deserved grace. And while God chose Abraham and his descendants to be his covenant people and to be his witnesses in the earth that God is the great I am, God did not abandon the rest of creation. Here we are as witnesses that God has not abandoned the rest of his creation. His plan has always included the salvation of every nation and every tribe. And in this story, he picks the worst people Jonah could imagine to show mercy and forgive. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, the people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. For they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. Jesus was talking to the religious leaders and the Pharisees. And like Jonah, they felt comfortable and privileged in their pedigree. They didn't want to repent. It felt good to be at a place of knowing and at a place of stability. And I am right with God. Thank you, God, that I am not like these sinners. They didn't want to repent. Instead, they told Jesus, show us a sign. Do a miracle. Let us know that you actually who you, who you say you are. We want proof of your authority. And it wasn't so they could follow him. It wasn't because they wanted to do what God was calling them to do. It was because they were stuck in their own ways and unwilling to see God act in a way that was different than they expected. They were unwilling for God to do something new. They were unwilling for Jesus to come and actually be a Messiah to nations. And so Jesus says that the people of Nineveh will judge this generation. This group of Pharisees and um, religious leaders, they ask for a sign. But the wicked, sadistic, murderous people of Nineveh didn't ask for a sign. Their hearts were broken by the few words of an angry prophet who had no love for them in, in, in his heart. But Jonah's presentation could not contaminate God's message. I think it's so amazing when we fast forward and we see what Jonah actually gave them as a message. It's like, oh, that's it? And the response, this, the spirit is so amazing. God used a reluctant prophet to give a message of a few words and this wicked and perverse nation immediately responded with repentance. They knew about the God of Israel because they had battled Israel. They had fought Israel. They knew how Israel was different than the other nations. And they repented. But you see, Jesus brings this up because Jesus now is very different than Jonah. Jonah would rather die than save his enemies or than see his enemies saved. But Jesus actually came to die so that his enemies would be saved. Jesus came to free his enemies. Jesus came and he put his own blood on the line so that we would be saved. Romans chapter five, verse eight says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That's why Jesus is the perfect man. That's why he is the perfect one to look at. He is the author and initiator 
the champion of our faith. Because Jesus, though he was God, did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. But instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And he did that. He came with the sole purpose of dying so that we might live and be free. So as we prepare to end, I want to give a call to us today. And the call is not much different than the call to Jonah. The first thing is to take inventory of your spiritual life and evaluate whether it's self-centered. How much does your walk with Jesus actually revolve around you and your opinions and your needs and your wants and what you think this life should look like? What you think you should be doing versus what God is calling you to do? Do we love unbelievers the way that God loves them? Do we actually prefer that some folks, I'd rather actually see them get judgment than come to know Jesus? They've done me harm. I don't want them at this church. I don't want them to be a sister or a brother in the Lord. I'd rather they remain my enemy and the, on the outside of the kingdom. They'll get theirs. Do we blame God in crisis or do we turn to him? When we experience a crisis of faith or something in our life, that is problematic or troublesome or one of those dark nights of the soul, as we call it, what do we do with that? Do we blame God? Do we say it's your fault? Why didn't you dot, dot, dot? Or do we actually turn to God and say, God, I cling to you. God, I have no help beside you. God, if it was not for your grace, I don't know where I would be. If it was not for your mercy and your love, I would be destroyed. Thank you, God, for your spirit of consolation. Do we turn to him? Do we make our own plans instead of following God's call? Do we say, I hear what you're saying, Lord, but this is better for me. This suits my life. I would rather... And it's so funny because as I'm like, you know, using my fingers to illustrate these points, I'm thinking, you know, with all of these fingers, as I point to myself and the areas and the ways that I have distanced myself, that I have disobeyed, that I have othered other people, I have no more fingers left to point at Jonah. God, it's, it's me. I'm the one in need of your mercy. I'm the, need, the one in need of your correction. I'm the one in need of your help to be more like you, to obey you. The second thing is examine where God might be at work in the lives of those around you. How might God be calling us into deeper love and prayer and evangelism? You might find out that neighbor who really irks your nerves. Maybe they're the way they are because they are dealing with some things that you could actually be ministering to them about. Maybe they have a need and you are the resource. Is God calling you to go in deeper relationship? Is he calling you to deeper love? Is he calling you to evangelism? Do we need to repent for dismissing and discounting people that God wants to save? God's will is that all people would come to repentance. That's everybody. There's no person left after all people. 
But have we put some people aside and said, mm, not them? No, they're not worthy. God didn't really intend that for them. But you don't know what they've done. God's will is that all people would come to repentance. And lastly, pray, pray for freedom from hatred, from pride, fear, prejudice, arrogance, depression, being self-centered and self-absolved, being selfish. Pray that God's mission becomes your mission. The more I talk about Jonah and allow the spirit to show me my own heart, the more I identify with Jonah. As I said, I have no more fingers to point at him. I'm the one who wished harm on my enemies. I'm the one who saw that family member and everything about them that I don't like. And I have disassociated myself and said, it's okay, God, whatever you want to do with them. I'm the one who have stopped praying for certain people and said, whatever happens to them, they'll get what they get. And so I don't know if you identify with Jonah as I do, or if maybe you identify with the Assyrians in the city of Nineveh, and you feel this call to repentance. That's a beautiful gift. God has come in the room and he has invited us. He is inviting us now to repentance. Whether we are like Jonah, the Assyrians, or the sailor, God is calling us to repentance. I'm going to invite you all to stand. No matter where you find yourself in this story, God is here and he's waiting. And the truth is, he deserves a yes. He's earned it. The way that he loves us, the way that he has extended himself, the way that he has poured out his love and his mercy and his grace on us. He's earned it. Father, we thank you for your love and kindness. Thank you for your words. We thank you for the truth of the scripture. We thank you for the spirit at work in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would just be with us. Speak to us. Some of us may have heard from a Jonah before and didn't like what we heard, didn't like the spirit behind it. But we know that you're speaking. We know that you're calling. God, I pray that you would sharpen our ears so that we may hear you. Sharpen our vision that we may see you and help us to say yes. Help us to say yes when you call. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you also. There's prayer happening on the sides of the room. We have people here who would love to pray with you. So please join us. Amen.